0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you, as always, for the opportunity we have to gather. God, gratefulness is such a good habit for us to cultivate, not only because you told us to, but it reminds us. It literally helps our minds refocus on you and the goodness that you are and you do. And so, God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather, to sing these truths that we sang. And now as we turn our attention to your word, which is truth, God, we are grateful for it, that you led people to not only write it down so that we could know it, but, God, you (laughs) revealed yourself primarily through a book, And so, God, we want to submit ourselves to it. God, I pray that you would help us to be grateful for it. I know, God, it is tough at times because it calls us out. But, God, I pray that we'd be reminded, especially today, that the Bible calling us out for things, it's because you're calling us into things. You're calling us into better things. You're calling us into truth and light. And you want us to walk in freedom. And so, God, I pray that that would happen today. So we thank you. We're grateful for this time. We ask you to speak to us. Open our eyes and ears to see and to hear and know this truth. And as always, God, help me to communicate it in a way that is honoring to you and is helpful to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 20. We've now four weeks into this series of messages based upon one primary verse in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where we are commanded to pay careful attention to two things, first ourselves and then the flock or the church, because in doing so, we are commanded to be good stewards. The whole message series has been around this idea of sacred stewardship, which is caring for what God has entrusted to us. So God has entrusted, literally, we've said our breath to us, our souls, and then he saved us. And so we're stewarding our souls, we're stewarding the salvation that God has done. And therefore, we are called to pay careful attention. So that's been the premise that we've looked at. And then we spent the last two weeks talking about paying careful attention to ourselves, because the person we're with the most is ourselves, right? And so we we have to pay careful attention to ourselves, and so we've talked about that over the last several weeks, paying careful attention to um, uh, our our time, who we are, the teaching, making sure we believe the right things. Even last week, we talked about the inheritance God has for us, and we'll get into a little bit more of that this week. Which thanks for coming back, by the way, because anytime we talk about you know money or those kinds of things, a lot of times they're spacemakers, all right. And so thanks for, thanks for coming back again, because I want you to know something that, and, and particularly about money, because you know the the phrase that says. Money can't buy happiness, which I don't think is necessarily true. As the song said, maybe money can't buy me happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Buy me a truck to pull it, right? Buy me a Yeti 110, ice down with some Sprite. You guys are sinners, all right? And so <laughs> the role of, of money... Uh, is is a big topic even in paying careful attention to ourselves. But here's why you see, money, I I do think, can buy some things that can make us happy. So I don't think that's necessarily true. And to be honest with you, that phrase is really a distraction because what we know money can't buy is money can't buy morals. Money can't buy integrity. And it's integrity that ultimately will lead to fulfillment in your life. So so yes, there there is an element of money can buy things that make you happy. And and I would even say to you, the Bible's not even really opposed to that, you having money and buying things that make you happy. People misquote this verse all the time. Money is the root of all evil. The Bible didn't say that. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So it's the love of it. It's the idea that it could actually do more for you than you, you think it can. But it can't make you a moral person. In fact, money is just a magnifier. It's going to mag- magnify what you already are. And so what we're talking about in this series is, is the role of how we actually are formed into good stewards. How, how do we care for what God has entrusted to us? And so we've spent, again, a couple of weeks talking about paying careful attention to yourself. But what I want to connect today is what Paul, I think, connects in X. 2028 20, that one of the key ways that you become a good steward is you don't just pay careful attention to yourself but also the people around you because it's the church it's the people around you that God created the family to help form you that is what builds your character and that formation of you in the family of God you being a person of character is ultimately like i said what will lead to fulfillment in your life. So we're going to kind of broaden the scope this week if you will because that's what Paul does. So let's go Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Again, we've read this verse every week, but now we're going to get to the second part of it. He says, "Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock." So that's the title of this week's message, to all the flock. So it's not just paying careful attention to yourself, but also the people around you. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I've told you many times, Paul wrote this to the Ephesian elders, which were the pastors of the church at Ephesus, which is why we're gonna get into the book of Ephesians after this. Again, even show you, and I did that some last week to show you how they connect. But Paul was telling these leaders of this church to pay careful attention to two things. First, themselves. And then secondly, to those that they lead, those that are under their care. So yes, specifically, this is about church leadership, but it's not only about that. There's a broader implication from an application standpoint that all of us should be doing the same thing, paying careful attention to the flock, who we are running with, and this is a key element of our formation, the flock or the family of God is a key element and so I wanna build that out and I'm gonna show you, we're gonna back into verse 18 through 21 of Acts. I'm gonna show you how Paul actually illustrated this for them about how he did it in his own life, about how the church, the people of God was so integral in their formation as he lived among them. And so here's the first point I wanna give you and then we're going to unpack it. In order to pay careful attention... To the flock, there must be an amongness. There must be an amongness. Now, I made up that word, okay? Which is why it's half hyphenated because the spell check on my software, like that's not a real word. But I'm like, I'm just trying to be biblical, making up words. Paul made up words all the time. But I want you to see this. He's commanding the leaders to pay careful attention to the flock. But I want you to see I can't pay careful attention to people unless I'm with them, unless I am among them. And this is the pattern that Paul himself instituted. Now let's go to verse 18 of Acts 20 and I'll show you what I mean. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived. What's those next two words there? Among you, you. that was good. Let's try it again, especially if you're new. I like for you to call and respond when I ask, all right? So let's try it again. How I lived what? Among you, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now we know from chapter 18 and 19, this was a three year period of time. And so Paul says, The whole time I lived among you. And he says, You know how I lived. Because I lived among you. So here's the inherent question How would they know how he lived unless he was among them? They wouldn't. And therein lies the secret to spiritual formation it's being among, it's living among. Now, here's what I just find fascinating. And I want to show you the relevance of this text. As I've told you before, our goal is not to make the Bible, not to be relevant, but to show you how it is relevant. This word here, "among," is literally the Greek word "meta." Meta. It, it, it means with. It's a preposition of association. It literally means a withness or an amongness. Now, if you know anything about technology, or you pay attention, you know to kind of current events, there is arguably the greatest, and by greatest, I don't. I'm not assigning value. I'm just saying the biggest. The biggest social media company on the planet is called Facebook. And if you know the story, if you've seen the movie, right, they developed this as a social networking platform. And over the years, they've acquired other companies like Instagram and WhatsApp. But the parent company was always still Facebook. Well, literally last year, the parent company over Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp rebranded itself. Does anybody know what they rebranded themselves to? Meta. Yeah, you pay attention, all right? Now, I don't think Zuck chose this word meta because of its Greek emphasis, but I'm trying to show you, you know Greek and he didn't even know it. Just like Nike. It's also another Greek word. But this Greek word meta, it's interesting to me, and this is the irony of it. It's interesting to me that that's the word that Zuckerberg chose. Now, he wasn't talking about it in this biblical definition of the word Greek, of meta, because it means withness. He chose it because of their desire as a company to really dominate the metaverse space, which in today's parlance is virtual reality. So here's why I wanna show you the irony. They rebranded their company to meta, to dominate a space virtually, which accomplishes the exact opposite of the Greek word meta. Because, again, I'm not saying that social media in itself is bad. In some ways, it has allowed us to connect with other people that we love. But here's what I want you to see. That online connection was always meant to be a supplement of being meta, being among people, being with people. Now, I don't have a problem with supplements. In fact, I take a lot. But if you think about the idea of even supplements, right? The concept of a supplement is there to do what? To supplement, yes. Now, the problem in our society today is our diets are deficient, it's like bread. If you ever looked on the ingredients, it says enriched flour. You know why it's enriched? Because they took all the good out, this normal flour, and then they had to enrich it back. Like, that's weird. We just took it all out, the good stuff, and then put some of it back in. We call it enriched. It's replacing. It's, and so our diets, naturally, as Americans, are deficient of minerals and vitamins that we need so now there's a whole industry that says, hey, don't change your diet, just supplement. Now, sometimes we have to, right? So I'm, again, don't hear what I'm not, I'm not against supplements. But what I'm saying is the idea that we can live our life in an unhealthy way and just supplement is the same concept of saying, I can live my life not among people and just supplement it. Not meta but I can supplement it with meta. And therein lies the inherent danger of social media. In fact, those of you know, I love psychology, that was my minor, and I do a lot of research on this, and even in my class that I'm taking, or I took for school last semester, my professor was a clinical psychologist, and she talked about how today there's an epidemic, and that's the word that she used, particularly in younger uh, people, because now social media has literally rewired brains to where it has told us you can have a thousand small connections, which in and of itself is not bad. But it's the supplement starts becoming the diet, and now the younger generations do not have any strong bonds or connections. To where I just read an article this week that said emergency rooms are starting to be overwhelmed with teenagers coming in with mental health issues because we don't know where else to send them. And here's what I'm trying to show you. The problem is not in and of itself technology. The problem is we don't know how to be among people anymore. We don't know how to be among. We don't know how to be with. I mean, think about it. Who have you been among for the last three years where you could say the whole time, you saw how I lived? Who are we being meta with? Now, more than likely, that is probably, if you're married, your spouse, right? Which, this is what we need to understand why God did that. Marriage is one of the primary metaphors of his relationship, God's relationship with us. We'll get into this in Ephesians chapter five, but he's talking about the mystery of Christ and his church. So, marriage was not meant to put you in conflict with your spouse. I don't know if you realize that. Marriage was meant to put you in conflict with yourself. Because you and I, watch this, cannot be formed by ourselves. This is why when God set up how this works, how babies are born is they are born into ideally a family. And we know, again now, we know that if a baby does not make immediate and lasting relational connections with their mother and father, they will literally suffer brain damage. So the the role of the family is to accomplish the amongness, the withness. That's how we pay careful attention to each other. But now we live in a society that says, superficial as the supplement is okay by itself but paul says no the bible says no there has to be an amongness in order to pay careful attention to now let's go on to verse 20 and say well how do we do that well i'm glad you asked look at verse 20 here's what paul says he says how i did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable I love this idea that Paul uses the word profitable. Last week, we talked about inheritance. Profitable. You understand that God doesn't have, again, God doesn't have a problem with you as a person being financially profitable, but he wants you to be emotionally profitable, spiritually profitable. In fact, Jesus himself said, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world and lose your what? Soul. So Paul says, I told you everything that was profitable. Profitable for What? for your soul to flourish. Well, how does that happen? Look, he says, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, watch this. He's reminding them of the relational rhythm that they've had over the last three years. So let me say it like this. Amongness is the key. So how did the Ephesian church accomplish the amongness? Paul tells us, very simply. First, he says, I taught you in public. That word they're teaching is literally where we get our word didactic. And anybody's in education, you know what that word means. Didactic is somebody that is trained, is teaching. It's like a master teacher approach, which is one of the main reasons why I went to seminary. I'm not saying you have to have a seminary degree in order to preach, but here's what I am saying. You better know what you're studying if you're gonna get up and say some stuff. And and so the biggest desire of my heart was not to study so that I could have a degree and somehow justify myself, but my desire was I don't wanna get up and lead people astray, which is why the Bible says not many of you should be teachers, because teachers will have to give a greater account not only of what I did, but what I said. So there's gotta be an element of this amongness where you are being taught. Our entire education system is built upon this approach. Someone who has been trained to teach. So the church is the same idea. Now, back then in the first century, they didn't have churches the way we have churches because primarily it started out among the Jewish people and then moved out from there and the Jewish people gathered in synagogues. Now, Synagogues is very much like what we would call today a church. It's a public gathering place. It's where people go together to be taught, in that context, by the rabbi. And so the church just adopted the same concept. And you see this in Acts 2. Peter said he, they, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread gathering together in large groups and small groups. And that's the easiest way to think about it. So I want you to see this. It is important for the people of God to gather together in a public setting and be taught, which is what we're doing right now. So good on you, all right? This is great. We should emphasize the gatherings. Now, it doesn't have to be one place at one time for all the people, because that's not necessarily how it happened there. It happened by cities. And so we've just taken the approach that, yeah, we're gonna have gatherings in multiple cities. That's why we say we're one church, multiple cities. So we can't in Jasper, online, hopefully more cities. And we want to have a gathering place where you are taught. And we have to make sure myself and whoever else teaches from this platform is teaching you in a way that honors the truth of this word. Because we got to start there. So there's a public aspect of a large group gathering where you were taught. But that's not all what Paul says. He also says, and from house to house. So back then, since they did meet in synagogues, they also met outside of that in homes. Which again, this is what I love about our church and a lot of churches today you just take the simple strategy of, of the early church. Gather together for teaching, gather together in small group in houses. Now, people ask us, and they don't as much anymore, but used to, ask, like, hey, do you guys have Sunday school? And, and hear me, depending upon your you know, uh, persuasion of where you kind of grew up and what denomination, Sunday school was a great thing for a long time. But churches, uh, amazingly, don't even really understand the history of Sunday school. It was not started as a discipleship tool where you gather people necessarily in small groups. It started as an evangelistic thing because at that time, several hundred years ago, our country was way more rural than it is now. And so there was a lot of kids that were not going to school because they were working on farms. They didn't have school. So the church came up with this brilliant strategy, and it was brilliant. They're like, hey, instead of making the kids quit the farms to go to school, let's start offering school for them on Sundays. And they got real creative with it. They called it Sunday school. But here's what you may not know. They taught them math and reading and writing. Oh, and the Bible. So it was a brilliant evangelistic strategy. Brilliant. But over time, as school systems caught up in our country, it started shifting in the church where it became primarily a small group kind of discipleship study, which it was also great. The point is not, do you have Sunday school or not? The point is, are you gathering people together in small groups? That's the point. And I'll be honest with you, and I say this often. In fact, I used to say in our welcome lunches all the time, and I'm not being funny, but it is kind of funny. People are like, hey, do you have Sunday schools? No, we don't, because we would rather use your houses for free. For free, instead of taking tithe money and building classrooms. We don't want to spend the money to build classrooms when we got your homes for free. So we would much rather take the small group element out of the public sense at the church and let's put it in the personal sense in people's homes. It works much better, I think. But here's what I'm saying. The point is not whether you have it on campus or off campus at the church in people's homes. The point is, biblically speaking, I want you to see the relational rhythm. A large group gathering where you're taught, a small group gathering where you're known. That's the point. That's the point. Now, one of the greatest honors of my life is when I see people in public in Jasper or in not Publix, but just public, all right? But I like Publix. And people will come up to me and they'll say, I go to your church. It's a great honor. Even though I've said it many times, it's not my church, but I don't correct them there in public. Well, it was actually Jesus's church. No, but, but the point is, I, it's honoring that they say, hey, I attend your church. And then almost always they'll say something like this. And if you've said this to me again, I'm not making fun of you, but I'm trying to make a point. They'll say, I know you don't know me, which most times I don't. But here's what I want you to see. The goal is not for everyone to know me. The goal is for everyone to be known. That's the goal. Now, every study that's ever been done says you will only know about 100 people in a church, which guess what? What's the average size of most American churches? 100 people. But here's the thing. The goal is not to know everybody. This is why you shouldn't Rag on churches just because they're big. The goal is to know people and be known. And our job as pastors and leaders in the church is to teach you and give you opportunities to be known. And here's what I want you to see. Here's the point I'm trying to make. This is you moving from attending a gathering. So you move from attending to amonging. Now I made that word up too. I want you to see this, all right? You move from just attending to amonging. Because, listen to me, as important as the large group gathering is, and it is important, you cannot do away with it. I want you to see, you cannot just gather a bunch of people and have conversations about the word. That's very important, but if there's not someone that has authority that's teaching, it's not the church. You have to have somebody that has an authoritative biblical role, pastoral role to teach. It's set up this way. But as valuable as the gathering is, it's incomplete because here's what I know. You can attend a gathering and still remain anonymous. And we don't want that for you. We want you to move from just attending to amonging. So again, we just set up a very simple discipleship process where you attend in a large group. Then for us, because we found out more people are willing to join a team first than they are to join a group. So we, again, we just took the process that Jesus did. He gathered people in groups. He taught them. He sent out the 72. And if you have ever seen uh, people on our teams, the green shirts, the purple shirts, the black shirts, if you ever seen the number 72 on the side, that's why. Because Jesus sent out the 72 to serve. So you move from the large gathering to a team, which now you got a group of 72. It's not literally 72, but metaphorically, you know what I'm saying? That's where you start serving and you start getting among the people of God. Then from there, you move to the 12. Jesus had his 12. That's the small group environment where you move from the gatherings to a team, the 72, now to the 12. So I want you to see this, the direction is to being known. But because I'm human like you, I want you, to, I want you to understand something. I understand why we resist this. We resist this is because deep down within our souls, we're afraid of being known. Because we're afraid that if you really know us, you'll reject us. So, it becomes a lot safer to just attend and not move to a monk. Because here's what stewardship does. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's my second point. Stewardship calls us out of secrecy and into public responsibility. Stewardship calls us out of secrecy and into public responsibility. What do I mean by that? See, We all have secrets, all of us. It's built into human nature. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, which if you listen, I I talk a lot about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because that helps frame the entire situation that we're in. But after Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says God came and walked in the cool of the day and he said, where are you? Now, I've said this many times. When God asks a question, it's not for his benefit, it's for yours. God knew where they were. But a part of counseling, any good counselor would say is you can't deny reality if you're going to grow. So God knew where they were, but they needed to identify where they were. And where were they? What did they say? What did Adam say? We were naked and ashamed. So we what? We hid. And here's what I want you to hear me. That's what your flesh wants to do too. That's what your flesh wants to do. That's what my flesh wants to do. Your flesh wants to attend without being among. Your flesh wants to hide because you're ashamed. But here's what I want you to see. But if you and I are going to steward, to care for what God has entrusted to us, we have to make this move. Because here's what I know. None of us can get to the level of stewarding that God has called us to by ourselves. We can't. And if there is anyone on the planet who tries to do this by themselves, it's men. There is no species on the planet who tries to go at it alone more than men. This is one of the reasons why I think men would much rather spend time in a gym working on their body, because they can do that one. But those same men that will spend copious amounts of time building their bodies will shy away from doing anything that builds their heart. Because that requires them to feel, to move out of secrecy, and into responsibilities. We all resist this. And listen, as the pastor, I'm way healthier than all of (laughs) y'all. Right? And it took me 25 years to understand this. If you've listened to our podcast, I just talked about this with Pastor David, where I talked about one of the biggest revelations that God showed me during the sabbatical was I live by this lie that says, I don't need you. And and part of that was how I grew up in my own dysfunctional family. But I just brought that practice right into the spiritual family. And I thought I could grow without people. And here's what's funny. I'm the one who built the system of grow. Gospel Relationships. I'm the one. You got to have relational roots to keep you grounded. I said that. You got to have people that can call out your blind spots. You're like, I don't have blind spots. Here's the problem. You're blind to those spots. Of course you don't think you have them until you hit the car next to you. Because objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. So until you wreck something, you don't realize something. Oh, that'll preach right there. You need relationships. But here's why, and it's not just a man problem. Our society, our families how we grew up the culture the air we breathe we are so individualistic almost nothing outside of the bible will tell you this and counselors that do are good biblical ones that will tell you like my counselor told me god's plan a has always been people it's the people of god it's the flock it's the family that starts calling you out of secrets. Because here's what I realized. You and I are as sick as the secrets we keep. Let me say it a different way. Your secrets cause sickness. And every single one of us is afraid of being found out. What's amazing now is people talk a lot about imposter syndrome. But here's the good thing about the gospel. Good thing about the gospel is you don't have to pretend that you're anything that you're not. All you have to do to be saved is say, I'm a sinner. All you have to do to be saved is say, I can't do this by myself. And here's what's amazing. Here's what I want you to see. All you have to do is to join a group is to say, I need you. Because we could call our small groups (laughs) hypocrites anonymous. Instead of AA, we just call it HA because everybody in there is a hypocrite but they're there because they don't want to be one anymore. So again, when you join our church, I want you to understand something. Please don't come in here and play church. I ain't got time for that. You ain't got time for that. And it's a lame hobby anyway. People gonna join churches and act like they're all holy and they don't need people? That is a horrible hobby. Church should be the one place where you say, I don't have it all together and I need you to help me pay attention to myself. See, that's the point. Look at this quote. In fact, this is from one of the counselors that I was with this summer, John Townsend. I have it here on the screen. One of the biggest predictors to narcissism is anonymity. If you're anonymous, then there are no social mechanisms to control your narcissism I mentioned this in the first week of this series, but I didn't have it here on the screen, but I wanted to show it to you. Listen to that. One of the biggest predictors of narcissism, what is narcissism? Self-centeredness. Narcissism is obsessive selfie-taking. And 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 listen, I know... If your social media is a bunch of selfies, then you got a bigger blind spot than you realized. Because you know what you need? You need a friend. You need a friend that loves you enough to tell you, come on, bro, do we need another one? (laughs) Do we need another picture of you standing in something, standing in front of something that's beautiful and you're blocking it? Can you just show us the thing that's beautiful? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? But do you see how our society, and again, I'm not saying the devil created social media, but he's using it. Do you see how our society pushes you to anonymity? And we wonder why people are so narcissistic because we created mechanisms where they don't have to be a monk. Not only do you need friends, You need fathers that'll call you out. And yes, I mean that literally and metaphorically. I I do mean literal fathers. And this is what's crazy. You can look at any societal ill, prison, anything, pornography, anything. And the one common denominator is the role of the father. Is it any wonder since the 60s, there has been an onslaught of attacks against men? Now we call masculinity toxic. And I'm not saying there's not toxic versions, of course, but masculinity of itself is not. We need fathers. We need fathers to call out our junk, which my kids, y'all listen to the sermon. (laughs) But we also need spiritual fathers, which that is not just a male thing, that that's just meaning you need people. Look at, here's what I mean. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4, 19 through 20. He says, my little children. And that's not a, like that's an endearing term. It literally means my dear children. the Greek word technon. It means my kids. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now. Meta. Now listen to this, and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Listen to that. Now, as far as we know, Paul was not married and did not have children, but he saw those that he was pastoring that way. And so it's it's crazy. He says, and I can feel this viscerally as, as a father. He says, again, I'm in the anguish of childbirth. Now, again, men can't give birth, but... This is as close as we can get to the anguish of it. But you know how it said, women that you have given birth and you know, conversations about that, people like, you forget the pain. It's like, oh, yeah, it was painful, but then you forget it. One of the reasons why I think you forget the pain is because forming that kid is way worse than birthing them. You just went from one pain to another pain. They were a pain in your side, and now there's still a pain in your side. Right? Because... Forming a human is much harder than making one. Which again, back to fathers, any boy can make one, but it takes a man to form one. Any, any dude over 12 can be a father, but it takes a man to be a dad. To say, "I made you," as my dad used to always remind me, "I made you. I brought you he say, I brought you into this world, sucker. I could take you out." But guess what? I believed him. And, and straight up, note, I've said this many times, and those of you know, I love my father. Probably no one had had a bigger impact on my life than a father in the first formative years of my life because he wasn't a believer and far from God. Then when I trusted Christ, he trusted Christ and everything changed. Now he's one of my best friends. But I needed, I have said this many times. I was not scared of the police, although I respect them. I was scared of my father. And he would say, if you get in jail, don't call me. Don't worry, I'm not because the bars are protecting me from you. I'm going to stay in this. I'm not scared about the people behind the bars. See, you need, watch this, you need a family to form you. Paul says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth again until Christ is formed in you. So we need friends. We need fathers. We need people to help form us. That's why we have to pay attention to the flock because we can't do this on our own. So I've already laid out for you, again, I'm not saying this is a perfect process, but it's a process. Our gatherings, attending, then taking a step towards serving. Paul said, I served you over three years, so joining a team, that's when you start to get to know people. Getting into a group, you're moving toward God, and I want you to see this. If you're moving toward God, let me ask this question. If you're moving toward God, are you moving toward light or toward darkness? That's an easy one, right? Light. You're moving away from darkness toward light. God's calling you out of darkness and into light. Out of secrets, into public responsibility. And your flesh is gonna fight that. But without a family that's helping form you, you'll never make that move. See, Paul said in verse 21, he said, toward God. Repentance toward God. And you need a family like the Apostle Paul, like a pastor, like a small group leader, like a team leader that's saying, man, we gotta move from attending to amonging. I know this is tough because a lot of us bring all of our family baggage as well, our dysfunction from our own families. like, well, this is not how we did it. This is weird to me. I know it's weird. It's weird to me too. But we just bring our dysfunction into the church. And this is when we have to remind people, hey, this is not how we do things in our family. So you make this move. In fact, we want you to join the church. You go through our welcome process, and when you join the church, we call it stewardship. We don't call it membership. Because here's one thing I realized real quickly when I started going to church as a teenager. Christians love talking about membership and the rights that they have but didn't feel responsible. So our tagline is members have rights, stewards have responsibility. So make no mistake about this, we are calling you into responsibility, which is why I told you last week, please don't ever say all we want is your money. No, we want way more than that. Your whole life. But hear me, but I don't want you to join the church if you're not gonna feel responsible for her. That's like making a family. Family and bailing on it. So when you join, I want you to be, I want you to be here, I want you to hear me. We're gonna ask you to be responsible. We're gonna ask you to give. We're gonna ask you to serve. We're gonna ask you to lead, straight up. Because now you're responsible. So the worst thing in the world you could do is join our church and then do none of that stuff. Please don't do that. We would rather you, I don't wanna say leave the family because that sounds harsh, but we would rather you not join then not be responsible for the flock. Not be responsible for the formation of human beings because this is a family and this family, the church family. This is why when you go to our welcome track, the tagline says, next steps to join our family. You know, because the first word of revolution is our and the last word of the word our is our. Oh, you almost said it wrong. So like that's super, I mean, you should tithe right there just because of the creativity of your pastors to come up with a tagline like that. Next, to, next step's to join our family. Some of y'all just got it for the first time. Like our, our that's cool. You're right, I should tithe. But it's a family. It's a family. So I need you for my own formation and you need me for yours. We need each other. We need the family. Now let's go back to Acts I want to show you this, Acts chapter 20, the last three verses of this chapter. Listen to how Paul talks, or how, not not him talking, but just the situation. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So this is Paul's move towards them. Now listen to this, verse 37. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Now this was... Elders, pastors of a church in Paul. I'm not saying we got to embrace and hug in every small group meeting. That's not what I'm saying, y'all. But just hear the intimacy of this. Verse 38, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That's family. That's the goal. Because any family that is functional, Let me clarify. Any family that's functional is trying to do two things. Form and send forth. Any functional family, which I think most of the parents in this room would agree with me, is trying to form their kids and then kick their kids out. Right? But some of you are like, my baby! But your baby's 42. Come on. At some point in time, that sucker has got to become a man and quit depending upon you to be responsible for him or her. They, here's the goal. At some point, you want them to be responsible for you. Right? Forget welfare and Medicare. It's kids. For real, that's how it always operated. But here's the problem. A lot of us won't send forth because we didn't form. Or even worse, we sent forth unformed or deformed people. See, your goal should be to do the rest of us a favor by forming your kids and sending forth formed, emotionally healthy children that are now responsible adults. That's the goal. And I don't know if you noticed that, but Paul spent three years forming them, and then they sent him forth. They accompanied him to the ship and sent him on. That's the goal of the church. Our goal as a church is to form you and then send you forth. We're not trying to form you for ourselves. We're trying to form you for the world. This is what I've told you many times. The fruit that God grows in your life is not just for you. The fruit that God grows in your formation is not just for you. It is now so that you can go and form others in the same way you were formed. So here's my last point. It's the intimacy of the family. Or Acts 28, 2028, the flock. The flock is the family. It's the intimacy of the family, watch this, that forms us, Galatians 4, and sends us forth. It's the intimacy of the family. And that's why the flock matters. I gotta tell you, and I don't say this just as a pastor, I say this as a Christian, one of my biggest things that upsets me more than anything is when people go online and they knock the church Listen, the church is not perfect, but the church is the bride of Christ. And I don't know about you, I don't like people talking about my wife. And one of the things I think that happens a lot of times is people will talk about church hurt, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does. But I gotta wonder sometimes if the church hurt was just the flock doing what was supposed to do to form you, and you didn't like it, and you left. And they hurt your feelings, but they were trying to heal your soul. And how they hurt your feelings is they called out your junk. Let me say it like this. They were paying attention to you. They were paying attention to your blind spots and they were calling it out. And I get it. We didn't grow up, a lot of us, in families where that was healthy. And so we do what we learned to do in our own families and we hid. And we just highlight our hurts. Listen, the church is not perfect. But don't give up on her. Just like you can't give up on families just because a family hurts you. Let me say it like this. No one's hurt you more than you have hurt you and have you given up on yourself? You shouldn't. Nor should you give up on the family. And I know we got some crazy uncles up in this place and we'll do our best to call them out when we see it. But I'm telling you, the family is here to form you and send you forth. And if you will not engage in the amongness of gathering, serving, grouping, <laughs> stewarding, if you will not, if you will not engage in this amongness, then you're missing out. You're missing out on formation. And you might be sent forth not as formed, and we don't want that to happen. So listen, we're not perfect. But that's why we got a group launch coming up. That's why we want you to join a team, join a group, join the church. We want you to make this move. Because we can't pay careful attention if there's not among us. But if there is, there can be formation and sentness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for creating the family. And God, we know that there is dysfunction even in your family, but thank God we don't have an absent father. And you are still working through the presence of your spirit to bring us together, not just for teaching, not just for attending and hearing, but for being among one another And God, this is tough to organize all of that. And we don't always get it right. But God, I pray that as we desire to gather together, to group together, God, I pray that you would do that supernatural work in us to form us and then send us forth. But God, I know there are people here today that are not even a part of the family because they've never trusted in Jesus and been saved. So God, I pray today that you would tell them, you would show them right now, you'd open their eyes by your spirit to say, hey, there's family information formation waiting for you. So I pray you'd save them right now. No one looking around or talking is always here as we close, but if you want to trust Jesus and be a part of the family, very simply, it's just confess and repent. So I'm gonna lead you in that you don't have to pray this out loud but you can pray it with me and it goes like this say father thank you for loving me that you sent jesus in my place for my sin ask you to save me forgive me and now by your spirit form me into the image of christ thank you for loving me again nobody looking around or talking if that's you and you're in one of our physical locations, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women are gonna put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. But the vast majority of us are already a part of the family. But maybe today, the Spirit has been speaking to you about moving from just attending to amonging. And I don't know what that looks like for you. And maybe it's not even this local family. Maybe it's another one. That's fine. But what I know is God wants you to move from just attending to living among where people can pay attention to you. So, whether that's joining a team or joining a group, again, like I said, we got group launch coming up. We're always looking for more leaders to help this process. And again, it's not a perfect process. But when you get into a group, we go over the teaching. We try to teach you to study the Bible. That's the primary way we do Bible studies around here. Groups just go over the message, the whole thing that we call reap. You just read it, examine, apply, pray. You do it together. And that's part of what forms you. Maybe God is calling you to join. Whatever it is, I know this to be true. He is calling you out of darkness into light, out of secrecy and into responsibility. So I pray that you'll make that move. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would help us. It's hard. Our flesh tells us to run the other way to hide, but God, help us to step into healing if we will simply open ourselves up and be vulnerable and tell people, I need you. And We pray that you would form us into the image of Christ so that we can be sent forth into a world and repeat the process. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Love you, family.